everyone. Welcome to the podcast where you learn everything there is to learn about building great tech products and companies. This is Ankur and Nilima. In today's show, we have with us Varun Badwar, founder and CEO of Redlock, a cybersecurity startup that recently had a successful exit. Varun has had a long history in cybersecurity and building great companies and products from ground up. He's currently the SVP and GM at Palo Alto Networks. If there was a 40 under 40 list in cybersecurity, Varun would be on it. If you're an entrepreneur interested in learning about building great companies, have a successful exit, and eventually see a big payday, you don't want to miss this episode. Hey, Varun, it's good to have you. Thanks for having me, Ankur Nilima. Before we get started, I have to ask you, is it easier to run a startup or being locked down with two newborns for the last six months? <laughs> They both have their pros and cons, and I think I have seen the best of both worlds now. So just blessed to have been through the journey and uh, looking forward to a lot more fun with uh, both building companies and uh, seeing babies grow up. Awesome. I can totally appreciate that. Uh, As someone who has had a few years on you in that department, I can tell you that it does get worse before it gets worse. (laughs) (laughs) Just to kick things off, Arun, you've had an interesting background and, and for the future entrepreneurs out there, people have a perception that entrepreneurs and CEOs are these two-headed mon- monsters like college dropouts and what have gone to and done some amazing things in the past, had an aha moment, a eureka moment rather. You've had a lot of uh, consulting background, then got into security and then obviously started your own company. Somebody who's going to want to start a new venture Take them through your journey. How did the whole idea come about? How did the events leading up to that kind of came about? Just take the listeners to that journey. Yeah, unlike many entrepreneurs, I actually didn't have a light bulb for entrepreneurship go up in my second, third or fourth year. So I actually finished my undergrad in computer science down in USC in LA. And I did it in computer science, but I was having just panic moment in the last year because while I enjoyed and appreciated taking computer science and programming classes, it just wasn't for me. Like sitting inside and coding away just wasn't for me. I love being on the outside, the outward facing side of businesses and technology. And so I had a bit of that panic going of what am I going to do when I graduate? Uh, and I interviewed with Cisco's and others, but I just, my heart wasn't there. And I stumbled upon an elective course that USC had just started for the first semester ever in ethical hacking. And I did that and I just loved it. The fact that you could break into people's environments and not go to jail was pretty amazing. But the next challenge I had was nobody back then hired undergrads out of their programs to become cybersecurity specialists or analysts or consultants. Typically, the journey to cybersecurity was from IT or systems engineering. I I had to hustle my way through a little bit. I I went for uh, interviews with the big four, really in their typical IT advisory services. But then when I had an offer from KPMG and Deloitte, I played them against each other to say, hey, but I need to be in cybersecurity. So who's going to let me in? And one thing led to another. I joined KPMG, um, was doing consulting there with the kind of Fortune 500 around cybersecurity, attestation work and other things. And Salesforce happened to be one of my clients. So long story short, hopped onto Salesforce. It was still only about 1,500 people in the company. So the security team was four people compared to many hundred today. And that therein began my journey into cloud. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk more about that, but uh, that's how I stumbled into cloud security. 
Yeah, pretty interesting journey. As I was listening to you and, and, and the listeners obviously out there, people are always curious about even starting with childhood. Did it ever occur to you, childhood, college, that I was born to be an entrepreneur, run my own company? Are entrepreneurs and CEOs born that way or eventually you learn along the way? What's your take on it? Did you always have the bug that I'm not going to work for anybody, I got to have my own company? It's a good question. And I don't think they're born a certain way or cut from the same cloth. I think it's funny. My mom is visiting from India. And just last week, she was telling my wife the story that she knew I'd be a businessman, as she calls it, from the onset. Because when I was 10 years old and their friends would come over for dinners, I would help my mom serve them. And at the end of the night, I would give a bill and say, here's my service charge for helping you. And then as I grew into being a teenager, I used to buy and sell bicycles and kept doing something or the other, always like very business-minded. Um, so I guess one could say I had that knack where, where the business side and, and deal making was things that I enjoyed doing. Uh, but look, you have people like me, you have others that learned how to code at six years of age and did that and became successful entrepreneurs. So I think entrepreneurship is a fair game for anybody who has the knack for it. And really it's just the passion is important, but the persistence is critical. You're going to see so many failures before you see success as an entrepreneur, as a founder, as a startup guy or gal, that if you just are persistent and you, you, you have the, the thick skin to go through that without giving up, I think anybody can be successful. And speaking of failures, so here you're at Salesforce and top of your game, early stages of the career, and you could have chosen a path where the bulk of the folks who are in technology chosen, right? Salesforce was a safe bet. You had a couple choices, take the safe bet or go and work for an early stage startup. And if it worked out great, but if it didn't, you would have had this peak of your career just completely gone to waste. When you were thinking about jumping into an early stage uh, startup or, or finding your own, did that ever cross your mind that this can completely go south and I've lost the prime of my career? And how did you overcome that sort of uh, mindset? Yeah, so the funny thing is, starting from my KPMG days, the safe route was just never for me. In my first ratings um, in the performance cycle, I was given exceptional rating. I was told I'd be on a partner track 10 years. They were trying to really entice me to say 10 years, you'd be a partner. And they said, look, you'll be one of the youngest partners in the company. And I said, 10 years, are you crazy? If you want me to wait that long, just in the structured path, why can't I do it in five or seven if I could? And, and they didn't have a good answer. And fast forward into Salesforce, four years into it, great company. We've gone from 1,500 people to 6,000. I got that itch again. Look, there's structure here. You can make your way up the ranks and you'll be very successful financially and through a career. But I got the itch. And, but I didn't have clear answers on what I wanted to do. So I took the, the kind of optionality route. I took my GMATs and I applied to the top five business schools. I got into Kellogg. And therein began the crossroads. And what I had to weigh my options in is go down that path, two years, opportunity cost, where I stumbled upon this opportunity to be part of a founding team of what, what ended up as being a fantastic journey full of a lot of learnings, which was to be part of the founding team of Cypher Cloud. And chose that route. Hands down, I think that was probably the best decision I made. Uh, it gave me the real world business school plus plus without having 150 grand in debt. And I've just never been the one to take... Uh, kind of a safe route. And, and the risks really early in career were uh, completely acceptable to me. But look, uh, I don't think age is a, the function. Again, it's the grit, it's the passion. And if you have a thick skin to go bear through it and are the downside you understand very well, it's worth the chance. 
Yeah, speaking of taking safe bets and uh, going to a business school, as somebody who has been there, done that, uh, had I not chosen that path, I'd be the one giving interviews and not podcasting. So you, my friend, have made uh, the right call in doing what you did. So look, you now start your journey, early stage company before you actually start your own company. What drew you into security industry? You talked a little bit about in the college, you took a few courses. What makes security industry so unique and so compelling for a lot of entrepreneurs? Like why it? What are you passionate about solving uh, hard security problems? Or did you see that as an opportunity like an entrepreneur or a businessman would see? No, I think back then it was just a geeky, cool thing coming out of college. Hey, I could tell my friends I break into people's applications and I do it where I'm licensed to do it and paid to do it. So I wouldn't say that there was a grand plan getting out of college, graduating and deciding to go in cybersecurity. But I will say the plan started formulating much more once I was in KPMG and I started seeing just how many people were interested in getting in security, but the opportunities were limited back then. And from there, as I went into salesforce.com, and you really just see this transformation happening in the software industry or, or no software, as Mark Benioff would say, just fascinating. It was fascinating that on the kind of defense side as a security practitioner, you've got to defend against every single kind of potential adversary out there. And for the adversaries, it just takes one. It takes one loophole, one entryway for them to get into your application. And it felt a little bit like a video game. It's literally like virtual reality, but true reality here of just getting that adrenaline, that just frame of getting the challenge and the high of doing something like that. I'd say today though, from there, as you look at pivoting my career by design into cloud security, I think that was very evident that in 2006, when I was at Salesforce, people still didn't take cloud seriously. Most people really thought of cloud as being something that was there for non-critical assets, non-critical applications, and more of a consumer-esque kind of way of life. And I think that's the bet I made was that, no, this was absolutely going to become front and center for every enterprise, startup, company, big or small. And if you look today, it's to change the way of life. It's changed the industries. It's transformed industries. We have seen companies get antiquated when they haven't gone on the cloud bandwagon. And so I think it was that intersection of cloud and security, which quite frankly, I had the early insights into just because I was at Salesforce. I'm very grateful for that opportunity because it gave me the early leap into making the bigger bets I made in cybersecurity, uh, specifically in cloud. Warren, talking about the practitioner side of things, you're one of those rare founders who've been on both sides. How has that changed your uh, founder journey, being on the practitioner side and then building for the protection side of things? Yeah, that's an important point. And this is where I might say something controversial, but I'm a strong believer in founder market fit. People talk about product market fit a lot. And I have so many people I talk to that have nothing to do in cybersecurity, never been in cybersecurity, but because they're hearing so much about it, they think it's such a cool place. They think there's a lot of money to be made. They want to jump in and attempt to build companies or attempt to you know, do something in cybersecurity. A lot of times the conversation with me is, hey, like, I think cybersecurity is cool. Like, What company can I start in this space? And I, I look and I fuss and frown a little bit because I truly believe that in order to understand the practitioner's pain the kinds of conversations they're having with their management, their board, you really need to have been through that journey. And, and I think that's why founder kind of market insights are uh, an experience and background is probably way more important than anything else in building a successful company in security. 
I think been through that journey, understanding firsthand the pain points, not second or third hand, having relationships in many ways with potential future buyers or design partners and other things really helps fast track you to success. So I'm a big believer in having that type of background and DNA. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense unless you are able to really have an empathy uh, for the people you're going to sell into. And one of the best ways to do it just by being there, it, it certainly gives you a lot of perspective. You start your journey, you were a co-founder at another you know, fairly successful startup and th- before starting your own company as a founder and CEO. Obviously, there had to have been some lessons learned as you started the company. Were there some core principles or philosophy on people, product, as you started your journey at Redlock that you carried over from the previous startup? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's many things, right, that went well in kind of the prior company. There are some things that were learned from failures. And I think the best experiences and learnings come from failures. That's it. Coming into Redlock, there's a few things I really focused on. I think one was just the culture from the onset of the types of people you want to hire, the, the level of transparency you want to have. As a startup, there's so much uncertainty. People are leaving great comfortable paychecks, roles in companies, and believing in you, you, the founders um, of the company. And you owe it back to these people, these employees, to really have radical transparency in the company. You know, so, so at Redlock, for example, everything from our entire board materials and packages to our financial monthly burn, store cap table, equity structure, things like that, were completely visible to employees. So I think that was something that's been very important near and dear to my heart. But the other thing is really about investing in the team. I think what I did find is, and I used to have conversations with investors that would feel, and maybe not every employee feels that way, but felt like the equity upside that we were offering early employees and team members was actually fairly generous in the company compared to other startups. And I think that was another area where I felt like when people are putting the skin in the game, honestly, that extra mile that you go to continuously make sure that if the company is successful, they're made whole was also an important thing in making sure that you are able to attract, retain the best type of talent in the company. And I think the from a product standpoint, the one thing I learned in enterprise, especially in cybersecurity, companies have dozens of companies, startups lining up to sell into them. And so what sets you apart? One of the things you often hear from a CISO selling security products is come back in six months, we'll set you up for doing a POC a couple quarters out. And my question was, how do you actually fast track that? So the important things were really kind of, again, the vitamin and painkiller analogy we always hear about, but in security, are you really solving a problem that exists today that's meaningful? And for me, I think being in a white space was more important because trying to displace security products is always harder in a market where customers may feel like, you know what, I don't have a perfect solution for that thing, the problem you're trying to pitch me on, but maybe I have something that's good enough. And if it's good enough, that's not my priority to solve. I'm really trying to solve for and catch up on things that I have complete blind spots on. And cloud security was one of those things. Specifically, as people were starting to adopt AWS, Azure, GCP-like platforms, CISO teams had no idea what applications are running there. So that kind of was an important point of view. The second piece was, how can I go in and out of a meeting and within the 60 minutes be able to actually demonstrate value to the customer? So the ease of use of the product you know, can it deploy within minutes? Can I do it with no software, no agents, no proxies, just really as easily as possible through APIs? Because I was fairly confident with the product that once we gave you visibility, it would be very hard for you to say, no, I'm not interested in this, or no, this is not important for me. 
So the question was, how do I just get you that report in your hands where then it's very hard for you to turn around and say, look, this is not important. So again, I think those two things were super critical from a product standpoint. And I'd say last thing is really on the sales side, building distribution is usually the hardest part. If you look at many security companies, they may even get to a million dollars in sales, but getting from a million to 2 million to five to 10 to 20 is extremely hard and costly, which is why you see it's very rare to see cybersecurity companies go past five, $10 million in revenue, right? You need to raise $100 million, $200 million. From the onset, I wanted to build a distribution model that's scaled. That's easy to say, but we, from day one, said we were a 100% channel company, which allowed us to say for even every one or two or three reps I incrementally added in my plan, the idea was that they could go find five, 10, 20, 50 partners that could sell with us on our behalf alongside us and really get us access to customers. And it's a story for another time or how to make that successful and what expectations you walk in with. But I think it was well worth the extra percentage points you gave to your channel partners to have that scale and distribution. And, and that scale becomes more and more important as you have bigger numbers to meet. A lot to unpack there and, and taking us through the culture, the the, the, the team aspects, the product aspects and sales. And we're going to double click on some of these areas uh, because you brought up some really critical points and I want to make sure that we can expound on that. On the culture piece itself, uh, it's top of mind. Reed Hastings just came out with his book, No Rules, and Horowitz wrote just another book on culture. Now in startup, if somebody's trying to start a company, it's 10, 20, 50 people. How important is the culture? Is the culture really just get shit done, have a little bit of transparency? Or this glorious notion of very predefined culture is more of a big company thing. Once you get to a thousand employees, then you got to start having like more and more things. Anything beyond transparency that stood out for you, not just at the onset of the company, but throughout the journey that really worked and paid dividends in the long term? Yeah, Ankur, the thing is like we talked about, entrepreneurship has a lot of ups and downs and, and having certain founding principles, guiding principles for the company, for the employees, for your customers is important, right? Because you're going to have a lot of tough decisions to make. Those decisions could be things like, let's say you have five customers today and you have 20 more you want to get. Who do you focus on? If your five customers want a feature and it's important to them and their success, do you prioritize that? Or you prioritize what's going to get you the next new five customers where you know that your existing customers might be unhappy. That's an aspect of culture. You have to decide what's your founding principles. Are you customer obsessed? Do your existing customers matter enough that you will prioritize them because they will provide you then the foundation and reference ability to get 500 more customers? Similarly, diversity of your talent. Because let's say I came in from CypherCloud. If every single employee of mine was from CypherCloud, the first 10, then we're all going to think like CypherCloud. And for us, making sure we had the right mix of highly experienced folks to folks that were new graduates out of college, to folks that came from security companies, all the way to folks that came from consumer companies. Having the right mix of skill sets is important because you've heard this before, but the kind of people you have, the first few employees, will then be the ones that are going to be interviewing the next set of employees and the next set of employees. And if everybody looks the same and feels the same and has the same background, your whole company is going to look like that soon enough. So I think those are just examples of why even early on, it's important to have, forget what you call culture, vision, values. What I just call, what are your guiding principles as a company? What's important to you? How are you going to make decisions as a company? Transparency is one of those. Customer obsession was another one of ours. Just employee 
productivity, employee experience was an important one. So you have to decide with the limited funds that you have, the limited time you have, the limited development horsepower you have, what do you focus on? And I think those guiding principles become really critical, even if you're a five-person startup. Yeah. One of the things that uh, a lot of lot of the founders, a lot of the listeners struggle with is that the first battle royale in the journey is to get to that critical adoption, call it millionaire or whatever that may be. Like, what does the first 20, 30 employee mix look like? So you know, I'd imagine that the first 10, 20 people are product engineering hires, you get the product down. Do you then start hiring marketing and sales at the same time? How many sales reps do you hire? Do you hire it in one region, multiple regions? Any uh, lights you can shed in that area more specifically, I think would help a lot of people uh, yeah. you know, through that journey. Yeah, I think we could probably spend 45 minutes just on that topic itself. The few tidbits I'll share is it really starts with you, the founders. Can you do an objective assessment of your skills and your relevance to the company? Like, Where do you ultimately think you have relevant experience and you're confident of that? And where do you think that you need help? A lot of founders tend to be very technical. And so for those types of founders, I'll say, look, make sure that, yes, of course, you've got to go build product first, but soon enough, you've got to figure out who's going to bring some of the business acumen into the company, the customer centricity into the company. If you're a salesperson starting a company and you have no idea of technology, I'd say, yeah, your first key hires, your first key leaders have to be just highly talented, not just engineers, but probably an engineering leader very quickly as well. So I think there's no real recipe that's a rinse and repeat on the first key hires. But generally, if you look at most companies, of course, you need a product first before you decide who you can sell it to or how you message it. So you've got to have the product. As it relates to marketing, my strong opinion is you don't need demand gen initially. You need a product marketeer, especially because for technical founders, it's very easy to get into the weeds. But trying to understand and having customer empathy on how you take a message that resonates to a large set of customers that quite frankly don't know you, don't trust you, and couldn't care less about you. How do you get 30 seconds of their time is super critical. So in the marketing segment, I'd say product marketing usually trumps demand gen first uh, because you need a message to then have uh, and create demand around. And I think as it relates to sales too, it really depends on the founders. If the founders are highly technical, a lot of times it's probably a good idea to hire a sales leader first. In my case, I felt fairly confident that I could lead a sales team up to $10 million of business. Like, I think that was my introspection. And so for me, the initial importance was to get real carrying the bag type of sellers. But frankly, in any startup, you have no idea what DNA you need, what background you need. Do I need somebody from a Symantec or do I need somebody from a Cisco? Or do I need somebody from a Dropbox? It just varies. And it's hard to tell till you've experienced it. And, and so I have a rule that I call a rule of two in sales. Uh, because the place where you can go wrong and it's most costly is selling. If you get a wrong hire in sales, I believe you lose at least nine months if you're lucky, more like 15 to 18 months if you're unlucky. And so the problem is trying to hire one seller, uh, the seller could convince you that if they're not able to get customers, it's a product issue or it's a messaging issue or a marketing issue. Sellers by nature are very good at selling. And part of that is selling themselves and representing themselves to try to Separate weed from the chef is hard. So my rule of two is hire two sellers at a time initially as well. I know it's a big investment, but two sellers, typically a little bit different backgrounds for both. Put them in slightly different regions and let them lose. And then you'll have a sense because frankly, for me as well, I, I had two. One was phenomenal out of the gates. The other one struggled. 
and both had the best DNA, the best referrals and recommendations you can imagine, but it just wasn't for the person who wasn't able to be successful. And I wonder every time I look back and it gives me goosebumps to think if that was the only salesperson I'd hired, they would have convinced me that I had a product market fit problem. And so that is a costly mistake to avoid. Going back to, you mentioned solving problems today, but finding it in white space so that you're not displacing existing products. I have actually two related questions. One is, what is your advice for founders who are coming from non-practitioner background? How do you find those white spaces? And the second question is related to what you mentioned, hiring salespeople who have never sold before in that white space. How do you enable sales guys to go and sell in that white space? So before we get into this, I do want to caveat the thing I mentioned and said, look, white space is probably the easiest place to go create a company. Uh, Displacement and replacement generally means you have a larger upside opportunity, but a higher bar to cross and typically a longer journey of the company to go through. And as we talk about exits and things like that, I think you generally can, can generate richer multiples addressing a white space problem than a potential quick exit like Redlock if you're in a replacement displacement type business. Because trying to prove that you really can do it at scale is much harder and more time consuming. But we'll come back to that. I think as it relates to your specific questions, I do believe that the founding team, if not the founders, needs to have founder market fit. So if you are a great entrepreneur and you know how to build companies, you know how to raise money, you want to go solve a problem in encryption or, to- or key management, but you have no idea about that background, I think it would be wise for you to go either get a founder-like person or a founding engineer that has deep domain expertise. Not only will that give you credibility when you go fundraise, but it truly will just give you enough uh, conviction in kind of the domain that you're operating in. So it's okay if you're a great founder but then you've got to augment your skills and it goes back to the introspection and objectively analyzing your skills as a founder CEO to say, what do I need around me? What kinds of people do I need around me to be successful? So that's how you address the first one. The second one is really good sellers. You will find if you look at their career trajectory will be successful in different domains. They would have typically gone from one domain to the other and they would have had a track record of success. I believe sales is as much an art as it is science. And usually for the early sellers, the the way I put it is the CEO typically, or the CTO is the SE. As a founding team, you have to be the kind of the, the, the person there. You can hire the best salespeople, but to get your first 10 customers, you as the CEO, CTO have to be involved and have to be very intimately involved. And my role in initial 10 deals, even when I had the sellers, I was their SE. I had to be there. I was there, had a product. I was there, SE. I was, of course, the janitor. I was a lawyer, <laughs> like whatever you needed me to be in that conversation. But that was my role to play. And so I think in a white space, that's usually how you tackle it. You've obviously got enough conviction. You understand what you're building. You understand the competitive landscape. You understand the value proposition to the customer. And the seller is really there helping you run the process. The initial deals, they're also learning from you, the founders. Uh, so that's how you achieve it till the time that they've they've developed enough competency in the space. But uh, I really don't believe that your sellers have to be from the same company. Just to give you an example, one of my best sellers at Redlock came from Box, and before that came from another industry, never in cybersecurity. 
And to this date, he remains very successful. And I had another one who had deep cybersecurity experience and he was just not successful. It's just the person more than the, the background. Really insightful stuff all around. And, and like you said, I think each of these topics can take hours and hours. But as we're trying to distill all your learning over the years in, in one hour, so we're going to try to pack as much as we possibly can. Let's just say, fast forward, you found the market fit. You've got the critical mass. You see see the light at the end of the tunnel now. Now it's all about scaling. Um, and, and the question that sometimes actually people try and fail at is that they go grow through crazy and just not able to grow out of that the, the new hires. How do you think about scaling? Is it like just hiring 10x of everything, like 10x more engineers, sales guys, marketing? Or is there some areas you focus? How, how can you be cautious in a market where there's just too much liquidity? VCs are just pouring money at you. How, how do you think about scale? Yeah, so as we talked about, even with the distribution and channel model, for me, it's always about leverage. You need to find an unfair advantage in every which way you go. So development aside, look, engineering is a pretty simple game. What do you want to build? How fast do you want to build it? And based on that, you have to decide how many engineers you get. There's really no leverage shortcuts there. Yes, open source components and libraries and all of that is there, but it's fairly simple. I think what really entrepreneurs need to think about is how do you get an unfair advantage in marketing and building demand? And how do you do that in reaching your customers and closing more transactions and deals? So let's talk about the first one, the unfair advantage in marketing. Most startups are not known to customers. Generally, what we found is there's really two paths that people have taken to be successful. And one is a top, tops down, one's a bottoms up. In a bottoms up cycle, if you really have the conviction that you can go organically, word of mouth, reaching developers or security practitioners through forums and GitHub and GitLab projects and things like that, you know, that's one way into these organizations at scale, which is... You get the mindshare, you provide customer and user delight. They love you so much that they're out on Reddit forums talking you guys up. And then there's 50 other people around that. You build a community for these early kind of fans of yours. And that community just grows and grows. And you get that kind of model either has some componentry of open source or a community edition or free offering around that. So that's one way to get unfair advantage and leverage in, mar in kind of marketing and demand creation. The other kind of ways an approach we took, which was slightly different, we didn't go the kind of freemium or an open source route at Redlock, but we went an unfair advantage route top down. We said, look, the biggest problem we have is customers don't even understand the risks as they go to the cloud. And so how do we get in front of them? So we invested very early into security research, and we said we would make our name through creating research reports that we had a very strong PR team really getting in front of the companies. And, and you'd be amazed if you look and search Redlock was on BBC and CNN and CNBC talking about various different types of attack vectors. We, for a lot of the Bay Area local news channel, almost every week, they would be in the Redlock office. Anytime there was a security incident, they'd be there newscasting us to give a commentary. The name got out, the word got out. And so we were punching above our waist, weight class by doing that. And that unfair advantage for us was research. But you have to figure out as an entrepreneur, what is your unfair advantage where you can get a 10x leverage? On the sales side, again, that's also the same problem. Again, like the, today, there's many avenues to do that. The, the traditional model used to be much more channel-driven, distribution-driven. People oftentimes think that if you get channel partners, they'll sell for you. That's not really true. The channel partners may provide you access, but you need to still control your destiny, run your sales process, negotiate with customers, close deals, 
To me, channel partners provide two interesting benefits. One is a access to the customer because they're generally walking the hallways of these companies and they have relationships with C-level execs. And the second is they can fast track your procurement process. But everything in the middle, you have to run. The, that's one model. There are now models which are much more pay as you go. If you, if you go down that bottoms up model, you go through leverage of marketplaces and things like that, that are successful. In cybersecurity, unfortunately, very few companies have been successful of building a low-cost sales model, which is much more inside sales, BDR, SDR type model. And I think if you can do it, it's an amazing model. But the chances of success are low because if you are selling top-down, the CISOs and others aren't taking calls and taking cold emails. So they, that's where the channel and distribution partner helps. So I think, again, align with your marketing strategy. How are you going to reach people? Align with your distribution model. Be thoughtful. Is it tops down or bottoms up? And then you've got to build the right investment plan and model around it. Got it. Just to sum it up, and the engineering side, not a lot of shortcuts, not a lot of unfair advantages. Like you said, you got to just invest if you want to scale and hire more people, depending on your roadmap. Really insightful stuff on the marketing, which is, again, have a whole bunch of marketers doing a whole bunch of demand gen, going to every possible show and spending 100K a show, uh, burn through all that money and ha may have nothing to show for, but being smart about it. And, and on the sales side, I think it's a, a great example. I think there are companies like Rubrik who ran an inside game and were really successful. But in a lot of other cases, you are right. I think there's a lot of draw for channel, but sometimes the best aspect is just to hire pay top dollars and get the top reps, basically, to get that scale. So you get to the product market fit, you get to the scale, you're on up and up, the classic hockey stick growth. Now, as a founder and CEO, a few things happen. Obviously, if you're not doing very well, exit path is straightforward. You get an offer, take it. But you're on a hockey stick growth. Somebody offers you, makes a shit offer, obviously say no. Uh, somebody makes an amazing offer, right? Like 100x the revenue. It's a no-brainer. But most of the offers are right in the middle of the pack. How do you decide when to exit or just keep chugging along and, and go IPO, go for the jugular? Yeah. Only, you know. yeah, so it's a great question and no easy answer. I think it's a very personal decision for the founders, the investors alongside them. And frankly, you've got to think about what's right for your employees as well. If you think about the model in cybersecurity, at least, there's really two segments you can fall into. I, I actually don't believe if you're a shitty company, I don't think you're getting an offer on Ankara, unfortunately. So I think there I disagree. I think you're going to go down in the history book, you'll have good experience, and then you'll be looking for a job. Um, I think great companies as well have two paths. I think one is early on, what I call a technology multiplier. Really, at this point, you have, let's call it your sub 5 million ARR business, but you're phenomenal. You've cracked the code on marketing and you've got your name out there. Customer delight is there. Early deals are landing and expanding. So good early evidence, but you haven't proven how you have path to hundred million dollars. I think if, especially in a white space situation, I think you're a great asset to traditional, well-established public companies and you get a fantastic technology multiple. You don't really talk revenue multiples at that point. The other segment, which is much harder, is when you cross $10 million plus, in my opinion, give or take, there's nothing hidden, no, no hard and fast rule, but 10 to $20 million plus, now you're working on a revenue multiple. 
And it's funny, the revenue multiples go down, technology multiples are much higher. And as we just discussed, distribution, sales, and marketing is extremely expensive. So assume that to get to the 10 to $20 million minimum bar to really get a technology, uh, to get a revenue multiple, you've had to raise at least 60, $70 million or more. And so founders are pretty diluted at this point. Majority of the companies are owned by VCs at that point. And so you look at two companies and you say one raised a lot less, exited for half the price of another one that lived on for another five years and exited for 2x the exit value. But the early employees and the founders made out with less money than the first one. And, so, and by the way, the other thing we haven't talked about is that the, the risks exponentially increase as you're trying to go from the one to five million to the 10 plus million mark. Way more speed bumps along the way, way more issues to solve. So it's not just dilution, it's also risk factor. So quite frankly, it's a personal choice of, on, of that trade-off. And I think quite frankly, it also matters who is extending the offer and what you believe the future is. To me personally, I think what was important is not just that I had a great offer in front of me, without having to raise a lot of capital. I think the important thing was like, what was, what was the future investment gonna look like? What was gonna be the structure post acquisition, right? Were we gonna have autonomy to be successful or would our company be torn apart into small chunks that are completely dissolved into a larger organization? So I think there's a lot of things that matter. At the end of the day, my investors left it up to me. They, didn't, they did not one way or the other try to influence me. They got a 20, 30X multiple depending on when they invested, so it was great. They never once said, take it or don't. They said, look, you, the employees and founders have worked the hardest. It's going to be life-changing for you and you determine what's best. And, and I agree. I think that's the way you have to look at it. What is your risk tolerance? What is your appetite? And quite frankly, can you achieve the outcomes you were hoping to achieve as an independent company combined with a larger company where you've de-risked yourself, you've got more distribution, you've got more marketing, name presence and such. So uh, yeah, I wish I had a scientific answer for you, but I think it's a combination of things. So we talked about scale, we talked about hockey stick, but the path there always has bumps, as you mentioned. Can you talk about a scenario where things look bleak? You started and one one week was amazing and then one quarter, nothing moved, maybe in redlock or previous. And how did you turn it around? Because obviously in both scenarios, it's been very successful. So Dilemma, it's... uh... Every week is up and down in a startup. If every week isn't up and down in the startup, then either you're not pushing hard enough or setting high bars or goddamn, you're just really lucky. I will give you my personal experience at Redlock. I think we had signed up three Fortune 100 enterprise companies as our design partners. And we worked with them. We solidified the product roadmap. We built against them. Every month we were meeting, validating requirements. You build it and you're really excited because you think you have these three Fortune you know, companies in, in the bag. And at the tail end of that process, one purchase, two didn't. And we kept getting the runaround and kept getting the runaround. And they said that we don't have enough budget now, or we think you're too expensive at this point. And quite frankly, it was heartbreaking because you've, you're really being, it's just in a mental model, they're in the bag. You're already telling investors and future customers, look, these are my logos, I've got them. And you start questioning like, hey, am I on the right track? Like, were they just being nice to me this whole time? Did I really screw up somewhere? So it's a hard pill to swallow, but, you know, at the same time, your engineers were excited about it and the morale kind of is a little wishy-washy of what's happening. Why haven't they given us a PO yet? Again, as an entrepreneur, like I said, you need thick skin and you need to be persistent. That's the way you win. You just, 
you move on. You've just got to move on. What are your choices? Are you going to give up? You can't. You're just getting started. And we just started calling down everybody that my founder and I knew, many different companies, reaching out to our LinkedIn contacts, really becoming the sellers ourselves because there were eight engineers and us two. And we were the pseudo sellers and we built a pipeline and we put it in a free CRM tool and we had 25 other conversations we did. And it was just pure persistence. And off them, we really started getting good traction. And the next week was back being a high because again, people were reacting positively just when you thought that two thirds of your initial design partners were no longer willing to buy from you. So uh, persistence ultimately is the key in all of this. Fantastic. What would you do differently if you had to do it all over again? <laughs> That's a tough question. And the honest answer is nothing. I would do it the same way all over again. I, I call it good fortune. I call it learnings from the past. I think us as a whole organization, as a startup, made few mistakes. The team was incredible. Everybody played their part to perfection and executed flawlessly. And with every part of hard work, you need some good luck and timing. I mean, those things hit for us as well. And so I hope and pray the next time I do it again, it just happens the same way magically. Yeah, I've always heard that founders are insatiable, but seems seems like it, it could be the age, could be the kids, uh, Varun, you may be in reflective mood and are thankful for how things have, and things have certainly turned out really well for for you and Redlock and all the employees. Or I just have amnesia at this point. <laughs> Last question before we get into the fun round, which is a rapid fire round. And that question is, if there's an entrepreneur out there looking at the, let's just say security or B2B space in general, what are some of the mega trends over the next rather five or 10 years do you see that and recommend people pursuing? I wish I could tell you what's happening five, 10 years down the road. I could tell you what's happening now and in the near term, for sure, where I think there's still a lot of disruption to be had. Um, Go for it. I think there's still a lot more in the cloud. I think there's a lot more in the cloud from different angles. There's a few things that are still changing. I think the first set of cloud technologies were really built around lift and shift for the cloud. I think nowadays, you know, people are realizing that if you are going cloud, you have to go cloud native. And so more technologies that are related to this whole movement of DevOps, DevSecOps, automation, end-to-end, the whole... Uh, rethinking of a SOC, right? The way you did incident management investigations in a traditional SOC, you had hours, days, weeks to sometimes uh, investigate and respond. These days you have seconds or minutes before things come and go again. And so I think this just needs a different level of thinking specifically there. Um, The second thing is really around microservices, APIs, right? Everything is becoming a microservice. I think the, the way we tackled application security in the past I don't see that being successful in the future because an application, there's no mega application sitting out there that you could put a web application firewall in front of. So you've got to think about ways to do this differently. Identity, right? I think users, identity previously was always thought of as users. I think identity now, every machine, every device on your network has an identity. Your light bulbs have an identity. Your printers have an identity. How do you authenticate them? How do you authorize them in this new world order? You know, there are probably some of the trends. And look, I've got to keep some mega trends in my back pocket too for the next time. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Did you have uh, something for Rune before we yes, get into the uh, rapid fire? Yes, final, final question. It's my favorite question I ask a lot of founders. 
any advice for female founders who might be wanting to start something in security? I know a lot of nuggets apply for all kind of founders, right? Risk taking, ability to take stress, but anything on top of your mind which you think might be different and something to keep in their back pocket. All I can say is the industry needs you, the industry wants you, and we're all here to support you. In all seriousness, what I will also say is I've talked about thick skin. I've talked about persistence, perseverance. I think as you started off this conversation with two four-month-old kids at home, you know, looking at my wife and just the amount of resilience she has and just going through this whole journey, salute to the women and just the amount of persistence. I think you're natural entrepreneurs. I think the founder traits you need to be successful, you have it. And I think you've just got to get out there now and take the risk and try take a shot at it. And you will be surprised to see that I strongly believe the success rates for female entrepreneurs will be higher because of that, just the DNA I described that they have and they're born with. Awesome. First questions, um, in favor of or against the TikTok ban? Against it. And why? Hey, that's not part of rapid fire. Um, <laughs> No, I think, look, it's a free economy. Let the users decide what they want to do with their data, who they care about. I don't think you need the government. And honestly, if you're going down that path, you've got to look at a lot of other things besides TikTok. Great answer. Privacy issues get worse uh, before they get better, or are we on a downward spiral for foreseeable future? Oh, yeah, the current rate, we're on a downward spiral. Got it. Do you expect uh, more fragmentation or consolidation in security industry over the next five, 10 years? More fragmentation. COVID vaccine in 2020 or 2021? Even if there's one, at least I won't be taking it in 2020. We let some guinea pigs go. So I think it's more likely to be sometime early to mid 2021. Got it. And the last question, I guess a question before the question, did you watch the debate today? Don't ask me questions about that. That's just incredibly uh, disappointing to say. All that. right. I'll ask you nonetheless. We don't talk politics on this podcast. Just your prediction on who's going to win, Biden or Biden. <laughs> I think the Supreme Court will ultimately decide who's going to sit on the, on the chair the next time around in the White House and the Oval Office. This is going to be a nasty election and one way or the other. And I think uh, uh, there's going to be no easy winner out of this. It's my prediction. Hey. I'll pull this podcast up in six months and see how wrong I was, maybe. It's a safe bet, uh, given the way things are going right now. Anyways, uh, Varun, you've been really generous with your time. Uh, we really appreciate that. And hopefully we'll have you once again, maybe a few months, a year from now. All right. This was fun. Thanks for having me.